This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It, 7.03, Wednesday night, Triple R. Nice to be here. We've got Colin and Tyler with me in studio. Hi, guys. How's it going? Howdy. Good to have you here. Um, coming up tonight, we will be speaking to the founder of Sheba. It is, it is being called the Women's Uber. Um, but it's so much better than that. It is a ride-sharing service for women only, and we will hear a lot more about it later in the show, so stick around for that. Lots of news this week. Colin, what's happening in our Elon Musk news this week? Oh, Elon Musk is a hero of mine. I mean, uh, trying to get us to Mars. You know, I often have this discussion about would you take a one-way ticket to Mars because that's what he's supposed to be selling and I'm surprised how few people would take him up on the offer, actually. But that's another story. But closer to home on the uh, the red planet of South Australia. So the uh, Twitter debate about South Australian blackouts has finally borne fruit and South Australia will host the world's largest lithium-ion battery. So um, in partnership with the uh, South Australian government, Tesla are going to install a 129-megawatt-hour 100-megawatt battery pack, which will have the effect of basically smoothing out the power supply in South Australia and making the um, renewables-heavy strategy they have going there with mm. the wind power a little bit more uh, safer, I suppose, for the security of the grid. Um, so it's actually pretty exciting um, that, you know, in an Australia where energy policy has been a little bit political <laughs> and there's been a lot of uncertainty about investment that Basically, these guys have just taken matters into their own hands and, um, yeah, world's largest battery. I liked seeing how Mike Cannon-Brooks, who'd been um, uh, heavily involved, he's from Atlassian, who'd been heavily involved in tweeting to Elon about uh, the future technology options and suddenly got swept up in this this offer that came out of nowhere from Elon Musk to, to jump in and put in a trial and if it didn't work in 30 days or something, you know, mm. have it have it for free. And, you know, obviously the details have changed a little since then, but um, there was a really admirable article with um, Mike Cannon-Brooks in the Fin Review where he spoke about... I almost accidentally got swept up by this and suddenly I realised I needed to get up to speed on this topic and it was a really a, a really great piece that showed a bit of vulnerability and just a, a willingness to not know it all but just that, that enthusiasm to, to say that, look, let's try a new solution, let's do something new, we've got a great offer here, what can I do to help enable that? And it was really, yeah, it was really great to see. Yeah, well, they're, they're, Tesla are standing by their 100 days or it's free guarantee, so we'll see it by December. Ah. But you, like as you say, the, the gridlock is frustrating and when you're a techie, for instance, and you're used to solving problems with technology, then they've just sort of stepped into the, to the breach left by the politicians and policymakers and got something done. Good to see. Yeah, so let's speak about a breach created by policymakers and decision makers and leaders. The Trump administration has <laughs> blocked startup visas that tech leaders backed. So Silicon Valley and Trump have had their rifts in the past, um, but the Trump administration have recently said they plan to rescind an Obama-era program, and it's one that would allow foreign entrepreneurs who launch startup companies in the, in the United States to live in the country. So it's an international entrepreneur rule, and... Um, it had specific criteria. Um, it had to be about companies that could win uh, $100,000 in government grants or receive $250,000 in venture capital to stay in the US for a renewable 30-month term. So it was really about stimulating industry and investment and innovation in the US market on US soil and for US-backed ventures. 
Um, so it's quite an interesting thing to see him rescind this. I, I think it's a big mistake. I mean, the sort of people that would qualify <laughs> for that visa, they're not going to be the sorts of people who end up homeless or or becoming terrorists or something like that. But hope, maybe it's good for Australia if the if it slows the brain drain slightly. Mm. Um, well, we've yeah, had to, our own or, troubles with the 457 yeah. visa. Or maybe brings uh, some of those people here is exactly what we need. Yeah. That's for sure. Look, mm. um, Steve Case, the founder of America Online, would concur with you guys. And he has suggested that the immigrant entrepreneurs are job makers, not job takers. And we love a little bit of bit of rhyming in our rhetoric. So good work, Steve Case. Uh, yeah. So some governments are having similar challenges to ours. What else is going on in news, Colin? Yeah, so on internet security issues, um, a very interesting case uh, that makes you wonder a little bit about since they opened up internet top-level domains, remember the days when it used to be .com, .org and .edu, um, now there's many others, and the, the .io domain has been very uh, popular recently, but a security researcher named Matthew Bryant uh, found that the people that run the .io domain had forgot to renew the domains on some of their um, top-level name servers, and he managed to s s register five of those uh, domain names, which meant that I think five-sevenths of the name server traffic coming to that domain would have come to his computers, which meant that he could have redirected any traffic he wanted from pretty much any .io domain to any malicious website that he felt like. Uh, this was a. There's a lot of companies that just simply rely on the .io domain, and that they, they could have been completely destroyed. Yeah. Luckily, he was a white hat, and he so he had to let them know, and couldn't find a phone number that was connected, or and eventually sent an email to abuse at you know domain registrar sort of .com, and within a few hours, actually somebody had had unregistered the domains that he registered and mm. fixed the problem. Yeah, and there's, there's a ridiculous number, like something like 270,000 uh, domains under the IO protocol uh, that were going through that. He said something like gigabytes of data in the first hour within he had control of those name servers. Yeah. Really significant mm. issue. Yeah, um, and there, more, there are more top-level domains coming on you know, all the time. So if you, mm. if you start a company and you make your business dependent on the domain that you use, which why wouldn't you if you're making an online business, sort of forget that it could get taken away. It's Just such a trap, isn't it? Because it's the boring uh, procedural part of setting up a business. Mm. And yet, you know, somebody's, somebody's got to be on it. Mm. In hardware news, uh, Jawbone, the consumer electronics firm once valued at $3 billion, is going out of business. Um, these were one of the forerunner competitors with uh, bands, brands like Fitbit and other non-smartwatch consumer wearables. Um, after years of financial pressures, according to a person close to Jawbone, the company has begun liquidation proceedings. Uh, this, A lot of economists believe that this may be the beginning of the demise of the wearables industry. Um, examples such as um, Mi Band in China are providing similar level products for a price of $22 yeah. uh, US. Tyler, did you ever have one of these devices? Uh, no, I've never been into Fitbits or that sort of stuff. I Did you have something built into a phone that you had no, no no I'm not a fitness person unluckily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah it's a it's a craze that sort of swept the nation recently and people still use them and uh, it, it's interesting to see uh, the quality uh, stay pretty much stable across these price points I think mm. that's been the real challenge for people who mm. are passionate about it you could either pay tons and tons for a, a real athlete level mm. piece of tech and that might give you 
you know, altitude and, and other things that you want to train with. Mm. But for most of the, the tech in this space, it's pretty basic and it's nothing that your phone couldn't do. Mm. And as phones caught onto this and started building that in, it's been really uh, traumatic for the wearables mm. market. Yeah. I mean, I think Jawbone, on paper, they should have been a success because they were right at the start of the sort of fitness device craze. And they had a pretty compelling product. And if it's a little bit expensive at the start, that's okay because you get the you know the people that are really mad, mad joggers and fitness freaks, for instance. And they nailed the industrial design. Yeah, mm. but the getting the hardware right was just like problematic, mm. and the the devices were just too unreliable. All the review units broke down, so they got bad reviews, mm. and three billion dollars have been churned through later. And look where they are. You can fix software, you can't fix hardware. Exactly. I, th- I think that wearables won't end, but this definition, this little segment of wearables, looks like it's well on its way out. Mm. Uh, another change lately has been that um, payment terminal requirements have changed. So banks used to require merchants to uh, rent or buy from them the hardware that would allow you to press your PID into their payment services. But uh, our regulators have recently made a change, which means that you could allow screen-based PIN entry, which makes a massive difference for especially small businesses, market stalls, people who are having pop-up purchase services and want to allow credit card transactions. We know it's the end of um, of cash transactions for for most of us. We're carrying around very very little, so this is going to be a significant change, I think, in the in the credit market. Yeah, and it's still a bit of a bit of a battleground over payment technology with Apple and the banks still slugging it out over Apple Pay and whatnot. NFCs, so it's, yes. Yeah, so it's it's going to continue to be an interesting space. Georgina McEnroe is the founder of Sheba, the revolutionary women-only ride-sharing service. And I've just said your name wrong. Sorry, George <laughs> McEnroe. You're well done. I've been so brainwashed by tennis. I'm sorry uh, about no, that. That's all right. It Welcome happens to all the studio. Time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. We've been we've had you on our hit list, our wish list for quite a few months now. Oh. Thanks. Um, but this interview, I must say, has been the catalyst for me to download your app. Could Great. You, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what Sheba is all about? Okay, so it just works like other rideshare apps. That basically, you put in your location, you put in a credit card um, or a debit card, and you. Um, so it's a cashless system, and you log in where you want to go and then uh, search on your passenger app and a car will turn up. But with us, you get a picture of... Our drivers get a picture of the passenger, which is unlike our competitors where they just get, uh, you know, turn up and hope to find you in the crowd. Um, So we get a picture of who is travelling with us and I guess that's pretty important because we are an all-female service. Um, And, yeah, and and away you go. So that's... That's how, how we go and we don't surge. Um, that's a bit of a difference. I suppose we have peak and off-peak rates. But like like all um, of these services required by law, you have to give a, a estimated fair cost. Um, and, yeah, well, that's, that's how we do it. Look, I, I signed up and it literally took maybe two minutes, which was fantastic. Hopped in there and um, maybe it only took two minutes because I spent a little bit of time choosing which profile pic I should choose. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really nice. And the only thing that was different to signing up to another ride-sharing service was perhaps that uh, you asked if I was female. Yes. And to confirm that. So that is the point of difference of your service. Um, And this is something that's really 
interesting to me as someone who may have had some fraught um, experiences in in taxis and other yeah. ride services before. Um, how long has your service been about and what was the catalyst for it? Uh, so we launched on International Women's Day, which is the 8th of March, um, that we launched in Victoria and Queensland, um, Brisbane, Gold Coast and Melbourne and Geelong. And then we launched a little bit later than that in Sydney. Um, so the catalyst really was for me, um, there are a couple of things that came together at the same time. I, I was working a few jobs and one of the jobs I was considering doing was driving for Uber and I'd registered twice and gutted out twice because I just felt anxious about having a mm. um, couple of drunk dudes sitting behind me. Um, and my daughter at the same time was hitting that, you know, pony up stage of her life of going out with her mates and was coming back reporting some pretty uh, anxiety-provoking stories, I guess, and was opting out of taxis and, and Ubers altogether and just choosing to walk home instead. And that didn't fill me with confidence. And I thought, look, I think really there's an opportunity here that has been underutilised and then I started looking around and saying, well, gee, you know, it's only only 4% of women are cab drivers and only like less than 10% of women are, are driving for Uber and uh, and GoCatch and, um, you know, it's a $6 billion industry and women aren't... It's a perfect job for women. It's flexible. It's something that women normally take up. Actually, they are majority of part-time and casual workers, so... There's a reason that's keeping women out of this industry at, you know, we're voting with our feet um, to stay out of this area. And women are cheaper to insure. In fact, more women have driver's licences than men. So Gosh, why? I never thought about some of those disconnects mm. before. Mm. Yeah, so, it, it, you know, it should ring some alarm bells for thinking, why are women not taking this up? It's perfect. And, and with our service, so women can drive with their babies, um, as passengers, they're contractors, they can ring a passenger and say, hey, Vanessa, do you mind? I've got my toddler with me. And if you say, look, it's just me, that's fine. Or you might say, look, actually, uh, there are three of us, it's not going to work. Um, then that's okay. The parent, the driver will say, look, I'll leave my kid in the car park. That's not <laughs> They'll say, I'll just call another driver. Um, but, yeah, so so there are a few things that we sort of thought, we're, we're going to look at this through the, the female lens, I suppose. And, yeah, I guess the elephant in the room for a lot of women was the dude in the back seat. And, mm. and that's, you know, it's really hard because you don't want to, you know, I'm, I've, I'm the owner and operator of three teenage boys who yeah. are fine, upstanding gentlemen. Um, but they, I know, and I was teaching at TAFE at the time, I, I'd just watch my male students get up at the end of a nine o'clock class, walk out the door, backpack on, my girls... The young women would be like checking their phones, how are you getting to the station, how are you getting home, who's picking you up, always making sure their phones had charge on them, always checking in with each other. Yeah. And they would get in a car and then they'd be taking a screenshot of the driver, taking a screenshot of the rego. You yeah. know, it's just that, you know. Memorising their driver ID number, yeah, checking in that. with a mate. And then feeling bad if they were suspicious or... Um, you know, is this incident worth reporting? You know, he didn't really do anything, but it just felt weird and uncomfortable. Getting off at the house that's not really your house. And I just thought, oh, I'm just so tired of all that crap. So 
can I say that? Anyway. Of course you may. So, yeah, so I just thought, well, what about if we just offered this and see how we roll? And, yeah, people are okay with it. Yeah, I think it's hard for some men to understand the issue, but my wife, every time she takes an Uber, she says, I hope I don't get murdered, and she's kidding, <laughs> but there is that, that fear there, so it's a excellent idea. But once you have the idea, you have to turn it into a pretty robust, scalable application because it's a very technology-driven business, right? So yeah. how, did you, how did you get started on that road? Yes, well, this is the million-dollar question. It's really tricky. It's a really tricky thing. So I, I started with a GoFundMe page, which was just to test the idea. After I'd worked at night and put my four kids to bed, I'd listened to a lot of podcasts on startups and what other people had done. And um, and and then I, I went about the business of finding a developer and learned a little bit about what sort of programming we needed. So I started to learn about MeanStacks and Realm and Heroku and stuff that I... Like, really, this time a year and a half ago, I could not send an email with an attachment. I really, (laughs) I really, really struggled. Um, And I still would prefer not to have to know about a lot of these things. But it's fascinating. Um, And... And so we we found um, this group at Hyperapps who built us a really robust, scalable um, app and it's won an award and uh, that's been great. And then we've moved on to a, a, someone who's really expert uh, in geometric, like geomapping. That's, that's really what we need to do now. And she um, built the app for Toll, so... That's that, that's really brings together all the sort of similarities with us where you've got a bunch of contractors on Android and, and iPhone mm. and they operate quite differently and getting your head around how push notifications work for those, pushing money through any device makes a really expensive build. Um, your data security has to be incredible. Your API has to be incredible. And then how you work or your CRM and, you know, build that gradually over time so and now that governments are legislating differently the sort of data we have to collect um is quite through the roof Mm -hmm. like how we collect data on driver fatigue for example is Mm -hmm. we've just been told by the queensland government we have to manage driver fatigue and i i you know like we're not long-haul truckers so we can have an app on I mean, literally, I, like, so I drive for the company and I can sit on my ever-expanding ass in Clifton Hill um, and be watching Sex and the City, but my app's on. Um, yeah, I'm not... If I record that as data, as active driving, mm. that is a lie. And then if you put in mandatory kick-out times or, you know, have you had some shut-eyes? Well, that's what they things. want us to... Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, you know, and we've had drivers fall asleep with their apps on next to their bed, Um you know, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Implementation uh, challenges. Big implementation. And, and driver accreditations, like if somebody gets booted off the app and they're contract workers, so they're working for us, they're working for Uber, they're working for GoCatch, they might be working for Lyft when they operate here, they might be working for London cabs, they might be... But so they say they get done for drink driving in on one platform, they know about it, do they have a duty of care to let us know it? Who holds that? 
so these are these are issues that all levels of government are struggling with um, and we as companies are struggling with as well. Do you feel like uh, you're very included in consultation about regulatory matters I from a state government I have elbowed my way. I have Cheryl Sandberg, this mofo, <laughs> like you would... I have lent in so far. <laughs> uh, so, look, I, I feel like we've landed right at the right time. So we are... Yeah, I'm an advisory on advisory panels to the Taxi Services Commission. I'm talking to the Roads and Maritime Services in New South Wales. I'm, you know, at the table in Queensland. So as governments are forming legislation and, and with the ATO, best mates, mm. sleepover next weekend. So That's not true. Let's jump back a moment yeah. to the point where you have this great idea mm-hmm. and you need to go out and start finding some app people to work yes. with. Looking back on that, you know, what was the most useful sort of advice or, or steps that you took at that stage? So what I did was I went with people who had built websites and then said, and websites I liked. Um, and actually, it's actually how I started my career doing writing as well. So when I started being a freelance writer, I'd look at publications that sold stuff that I liked and thought... I think I could write f- for something like that. That's, And so similarly, I looked up websites that I thought were really cool or really had the right tone or pitch or style and then I looked at their apps and then I worked my way backwards from there and that's, that is a really long, painstaking process. Even to get a phone call <laughs> returned can take weeks and... Um, then to get someone, and I understand this, but this is, I think, something that will shock a lot of people who want to get an app built, is that for somebody to scope out the wireframing or even just to sit down with you and do a basic etch will be, you know, possibly $10,000. And my face nearly fell off the front of my head <laughs> when they told me that. But then when they explained, well, we're going to... To get us a quote is going to be like building a small submarine. We will spend, we will have to have three engineers working on this for three full days. We can't have a bunch of tyre kickers coming in and going, I was thinking about maybe if we, mm. nah, actually, don't worry. Like, so you have to understand that if you're going to get something built well, and I've also seen people build a bad app and have it go absolutely nowhere. So don't burn 30, 40 grand on a crappy app. Um, Like wait, get some more funds, get some mum and dad investors, beg, I don't know, but really you will will get what you pay for and then... Mm hold them really accountable. So before you got to, say, the expensive wireframe sort of stage, did you have anyone talk you through techniques to, you know, use paper kind of versions of of interfaces and sort of test concepts with you? No, but I knew exactly what I wanted it to do. So I honestly, this sounds so crazy, but I was like a mad composer. I was Amadeus, I tell you. <laughs> I, but I could not stop. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew how I wanted it to look. Um, I knew that I didn't want it to be pink. Um, and then I sent off the first thing to designers and they came back pink. <laughs> and sadly, that guy was living in Estonia, so I couldn't go to his house and punch him in the face. But um, 
<laughs> but so you know, I, I knew I knew the symbols I wanted to use. I knew roughly. Uh, I had I had a very clear sense of how I wanted it to look and feel and taste. But yeah. Now, George, we've just finished speaking a little bit about the whole process of, you know, conce- conceiving an app and then finding some people to help you build it and um, a little bit about, you know, regulatory frameworks and things. Colin, you wanted to jump into something here? Well, so you've your app um, focusing as it does on women and yeah. you, the company is run by women, the drivers yeah. are women and the customers are, are women only yeah. and, um, plus kids. Um, you know, in some corners of the internet, which, um, you know, unfortunately you see all too often, that can lead to some pushback by a certain type. Have you attracted any of that hate? Really? I wouldn't have. You mean there'd be men opposed to women doing things independently of them, such as driving a vehicle? Uh, yes. Men's rights. Uh, look, are they? Yeah. They're, look, there have been a few cranky pants, um, but I think what we've managed to say to, and, and it's getting less so now, when the young Neil Mitchell's had me on his program on 3AW a couple of times and when I put to him the question to his questions, when he said, is this discriminatory? And I said, yes, clearly it is. Clearly it is. No one is apologising for that at all because rape is very discriminatory. Um, And having done all the research to go before VCAT and other regulatory bodies around the discrimination laws and we respect them, of course, um, we haven't been able to find one instance of a female cab driver sexually assaulting a passenger, male or female. But the reverse isn't true. And there are there are female sexual predators. In fact, they make up 2% of our sexual predators in a, of the Australian population. So they exist. We know that's true. Um, but our drivers do have working with children checks. Uh, they do have police checks. And... We accept that under Australian law, you know, we want everyone to have an opportunity. And so what's happened to to some of those guys now, I think is when I said to Neil, look, if you can tell me in any way, if, if Sheba makes men less safe in any way, shape or form, tell me and I will shut it down tomorrow. And funnily enough, he couldn't find an answer to that. <laughs> but... But, you know, it's the getting that idea that, if, you know, if, there, if there's a gay nightclub down the road where, you know, there are some guys having a great time and I can't go and join in because I'm not a gay man, is my night ruined? Or can I go and find another place where I can get amongst it and have a great time? Just because there's a place where other people go to feel safe and have a good time doesn't mean it's not like this pie that has suddenly <laughs> been my slice has been diminished because they're sli- they're getting a slice so i think by when you explain that to people and say look we're not we, we don't take couples um we're not trying to take over the world we just want when girls are traveling by themselves i mean men can travel with us you know we do have um if you need a baby capsule um, to go to the airport, you can catch a Sheba. Uh, we take boys up to, you know, primary school age kids. Uh, young men can travel with their mums up to the age of 18. There's never been a case of a woman being sexually assaulted, 
um, in a cab or an Uber um, with an adult male companion. But it's, it's not just that. It's, it's also providing a place, like, you know, if one in five women experiences sexual assault, whether it's in a, in a transport or not, it's that, that she brings that experience with her into the world, whether it's waiting for a train or standing at the bus. You know, there's a girl on Separation Street the other day in, uh, in Northcote and this car full of guys just drove past her and called her a fat slut and I just thought, yeah, she's 12, you know. Mm. She's just got to absorb that into her life and I think that's enough to make you want to jump in a car where you just know that's not going to happen to you. There's a massive trend at the moment for people trying to um, have more transparency around where they're putting their money in a whole range of businesses and that Mm. includes, you know, ethical investments trending. Mm. Um, But I think that this is pretty significant right now where we've had months and months of terrible news about corporate culture within companies like Uber. Mm. Um, Lyft is a, is a big exception to this. Yeah. But, um, but, but Uber has had some real scandals. Yeah. And um, it's, it's nice to have an option in the market, I think. Uh, look, it, it is. And, and, you know, this is the difference with us where our drivers get to keep 85% of what they earn. Every, 1% of every fare goes to three charities. Um, so we support Women's Housing Limited, Post and Antenatal Depression Association and the Centre Against Sexual Assault Education Program. Um, but also every woman who signs up to us gets a half hour free financial consultation to talk about the fact that she's a contract worker, what her rights are, superannuation, income protection insurance. So we're trying to make women financially literate as well. Um, so that's a big... You know, these things we hope will have a big impact um, on on women going forward and they can actually make some decent coin. We're going to introduce a minimum fare so that no one gets in a car and drives somewhere for like $5.50. Like it's just mm. obscene, you know. So I noticed that when I hopped into your app, um, it was a little less cluttered than some other ride-sharing apps that I've yeah. used. And sometimes that was because you didn't have some features of some other services. Yeah. And one of those was the um, centre friends, like track your ride sort of functionality. Yeah. Has that been one of the benefits of having the sort of social structure that you have of your company? Yeah, like you can watch the car on the app. Um, if so, if parents like that feature that they can still watch the car that their child is in disappear, um, you know, into the into the distance and track it online. Mm. Um, but because we don't have that issue, it's not such a big. Uh, a big deal. It is frankly an acknowledgement from from other companies that they have a problem with this and that, you know, extra protections are needed. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, knowing that who your driver is and you've got a picture of her face, yeah, really helps. Yeah. So when you've taken this business and presented it to potential investors and so on, have you found that they just get get it straight away or have you had to sort of talk them through some of these ins and outs? Um, Look, early on I had a really cynical, horrible discussion with... (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness a, a, a gentleman said to me what your pricing's all wrong you should be charging triple because what wouldn't women pay not to be raped oh my oh gosh my <laughs> <laughs> so we finished that meeting quite early um that was that's not missing the point at all <laughs> um no he saw an opportunity there <laughs> um so, yeah, that, that was an interesting take. But, no, look, uh, investors are, are pretty um, – I think they can see the scope now, but I still think some of them don't 
understand quite what it means for women to be able to work later, uh, the benefit to have a Sheba driver go and pick your kids up from school um, and not have to leave work and, and stuff like that. So we've had some really moving stories of women being able to say, I can now take on that job. Um, we've had parents be able to say, my kid's been able to take up that swimming scholarship because now you can take them. I wouldn't have felt mm. comfortable putting them on public transport at 5am. So kids doing rowing or, you know, I don't know why swimmers have to get up at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> I, I don't think it's good for them, but still. Um, so stuff like that that I didn't actually, I, I sort of conceived of uh, girls standing outside King Street nightclubs, you know, um, but all oh, these other all these other great benefits that mm. are really lovely and moving. And so I saw uh, on your news that you recently won the um, the uh, social impact pitch. Yeah. Um, very nice. Can you tell, yes, tell us a little bit about that and who, who are you up against? Oh, we're up, some, up against some incredible apps actually, um, really interesting apps. So there's um, some people who are showing an app about how to train people in to be disability carers. So that was... One, so I worked in disabilities for six years, so I thought this was really a cool way to teach people about. They just gave them scenarios um, about what you know the right and the wrong way to approach somebody who was, um, you know, in a bedroom. A carer comes in and just starts immediately starts tidying up this guy's stuff, and like not even a good morning, not knocking at the door, not introducing themselves, like stuff I'd seen people do for years going, oh my God, that's so rude. Um, anyway, stuff that I thought, oh, Stella Young would have loved this app. Um, and then there was another, uh, another person who, this woman who screened companies for female employees before they started working there to check out what their sort of sexual politics was like so that you weren't sending in... Uh, people into situations that had really bad track records on sexual harassment in the workplace or bad maternity leave or, you know, interview people and say, so when are you planning on having your first baby? <laughs> um, that sort of thing. And there was another gentleman who had this great idea of a chat room with um, people with mental health issues where they could then up their level of involvement and, and level of care that they needed. Um, so, yeah, some really really good ideas there so yeah it was it was wild there were like 650 people there um you know i'd raced home from work fried up some hideous meat product from coles <laughs> for the children and then just bolted down and and pitched our little hearts out but yeah it was, it was huge it was really fun they're fun, young people. <laughs> oh, those millennials. I think you're still in the young people category. Oh, <laughs> you. Uh, so we can't let you go without asking you if you have any long-term expansion plans. Oh, yeah, we will be taking over the world. Um, so we get, we do get a lot of demand. So we're very trans-friendly, obviously, um, at Sheba. So, you know, it means all women. Um, and we have a lot of issues with... Um, transgender people being killed in countries like Brazil. Um, so that's one big growth area for us. Um, the murder rate there is just simply mind-blowing. Um, a lot of people in Johannesburg write to us regularly and want us to join in over there. And in um, New Zealand, there's a big push to cross the Dutch. So <laughs> we're, gonna, we're going to sort her out 
really bed the app down. Um, we've got some really exciting things happening, some new features and functions that we're being that are being built now. And then we'll go west and then look out. Well, thank you for coming and telling us all about your journey. I just hate talking about (laughs) Sheba. It's just so dreadful. We can really recommend that people go to uh, Sheba, S-H-E-B-A-H.com.au. Check out this women-only ride-sharing service. Get behind a local business and, yeah, you might see me in one of those cars very soon. Yeah, and we do pay GST. Our drivers get it to pay it too. It's amazing. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Thanks for your time tonight, George. Thanks. Today is a day of activism to support net neutrality. Now, it's more of a day of activism in the States, I've got to say. So, uh, but it is investigatable on battleforthenet.com. Just because I'm in the mood to, you know, use long-winded words. Mm-hmm. Colin, has this been on your radar? Yes, uh, it's a, I'm very interested in the intersection between technology and politics, having worked in both mm. fields. And this, um, it's a nuclear combination of the both in the United States where big business, big money and lobbying are coming up against some of the fundamental principles of the internet. So the, the, the idea behind net neutrality is that if I'm, a, if, if I'm an internet service provider, I, if, if I'm obeying net neutrality, then I have to treat all internet traffic more or less equally. So if I'm, if I'm bringing in from, uh, packets of data in from Netflix and out to you, that I'm not doing something to uh, prioritise or deprioritise that traffic over something from any other website. Mm. And this is how the internet was built. You have an IP address, um, you know, you have routers and you, you slap a destination on a packet and send it off into the internet and it will mm-hmm. be delivered to its uh, intended recipient. No one, no proprietary network getting in the way and acting as a gatekeeper. But the big internet service providers in America, the cable companies, of which there is mm. um, 80% of US households only have a choice of one or two of the, the big dominant companies, mm. they would love for this to be repealed because then it means they can go to someone like Netflix and say, if you don't pay us a bunch of money, well, we're going to make your traffic go slower. Uh, you, your users will have a worse experience and mm. you know, then you, your business will fail, so you have to pay us. Um, or they can gouge the users, in fact, probably both. They can gouge the users and say, if you don't pay us, then we'll deprioritise traffic to some of these websites that you really like to use. Mm. A, a massive part of the issue, I think, is that in the States particularly, and much more so than in Australia, uh, lots of the ISP owners are also media content owners and they're very much involved in publishing content and therefore the means of delivery is, you know, that being kind of enmeshed in their business um, imperatives is is a real conflict of interest. Right. So imagine t- Australia, we have Stan competing with Netflix, for instance. So imagine the the internet service provider monopoly invested in Stan and they wanted to kill Netflix. So what is that going to mean for people that like Netflix and, you know, for Netflix and any other businesses like that? So in America... Um, you may be surprised to learn money um, influences politics uh, from time no. to time. Really. And but that, the, that wouldn't happen here, though, Colin, would it? Uh, well, mm, yes. Well, <laughs> I've got some good stories there as well from my time working in Canberra. But, but the internet, the, the big cable companies have spent $572 million lobbying for on this issue for repeal of net neutrality. Um, that's a lot of money. In fact, it's second only to the sort of largest defence contractors in terms of money spent on lobbying the, the Congress. So it's a really big... Um, you know, political issue. There's pretty much nobody else on the side of the the cable companies, but they have a lot of political power. Mm. And we've seen them 
adopt some pretty dirty tactics such as uh, putting in fake grassroots comments to the inquiry being held by the Federal Communications Commission. And so a lot of people, even sort of reasonably well-known commentators, have found their own name on a comment submitted to the FCC saying, please repeal net neutrality, it's strangling mm. jobs or whatever corny argument the business lobby are using. Yeah, that's that's pretty rubbish um, and very, very obvious that they've done that. Um, so part of the day of action involved a whole lot of websites like Reddit, um, Netflix, uh, and then your usual suspects like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mm. All of these, all of these popular websites putting little banners up, putting up little text boxes, getting you to, you know, email your local government representative. This is not relevant for Australians. And so a lot of us wouldn't have seen these because there was some um, geo recognition going on there. And if we weren't in the right domain and weren't using US servers, then some of this wouldn't appear to us. Um, other sites just changed images and things, so we could still see that. But, yeah, the uh, EFF has... Um, has been powerful in, in fighting uh, against uh, this sort of change. They've said that net neutrality isn't just about consumer protection, it's about freedom of speech. Now, this is still relevant to us in Australia. Um, while we don't have an enshrined freedom of speech, we do have an implied constitutional right to free speech um, in regards to governmental and political affairs. And we also um, have to think about the internet uh, the way it behaves rather than just, you know, the American jurisdiction. You know, it's, it's a global product that we all use and with so many startups and um, massive global corporations who run huge amounts of what's online, it's super important for us that, that these sort of rules don't come in and actually affect the highway speeds for all of us. I mean, it would be bad for Australian businesses if... Because they wouldn't have the money to go to Comcast and pay for their tra traffic to be prioritised. It would be a huge barrier to entry, say, in the US market, whereas now, you know, if you have a great Australian web-based product, you can compete on a level playing field even in the, the largest market on earth. So, and of course, the free speech arguments are... It's really important for startups too. If um, if startups are ever going to compete with and disrupt the major players, you know, there's that first entry to market advantage that people have. But, if, you know, if you want to have someone competing with your Spotify's or your Vimeo's or any of these, mm. you actually still need to have um, uh, egalitarian access to the infrastructure. And considering our taxes pay for actually a lot of that infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, it seems to make a lot of sense that we would have that. Yep, and we've got... We're lucky to have NBN Co, the national uh, government monopoly on the internet backbone and uh, how good that could have been. But it just goes to show, you know, once you have a couple of companies that have a monopoly on something so important as internet access, a lot of really troubling issues crop up in very short order. Tyler, what have you got for us in weird news of the week? Uh, I wouldn't say it's very weird. It's just an interesting approach. Uh, an Australian paper mill in the Latrobe Valley is uh, looking to burn household waste as a substitute for coal to create power. Um, they will uh, mostly be taking that waste from landfill and municipal waste bins, and it should be able to power almost the entire mill to reduce gas costs and emissions, and also costs for consumers themselves. 
That's mm. tremendous. It is tremendous. It's, what's uh, with all the good energy news this week? This is actually giving me some hope. It's uh, Yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Maybe because Al Gore's in town. Mm. Uh, the uh, paper mill is one of Victoria's largest industrial users of gas with an annual gas bill of $8 million. Um, so it's uh, in feasibility studies at the moment. And if deemed economically viable, it would be subjected to strict environmental and engineering assessments. But hope is there. Hope is there. Very nice. Yeah. In my weird news of the week... I have for you an artificial tongue, that's correct. It's not a creepy built artificial tongue, it is actually um, the simulation of what a tongue's capabilities are. So a team from Germany's Heidelberg University has, has made this tongue and they've made it to solve a whiskey problem. Now, I don't know how many whiskey problems there can possibly be, mm -hmm. but uh, apparently testing different kinds of whiskey scientifically is, um, as you know, in terms of chemical analysis, um, isn't that useful for higher-end whiskies in terms of telling them apart? Because they have such similar chemical makeups that regular tests often don't work in terms of showing up the mm. differences. Um, so you either have to use humans, and I would love to be one of those humans, and do it the old-fashioned way by tasting the whiskey. But obviously whiskey is quite strong and, you know, people have their limits about how much of this testing they can do. So what this team has done is created a series of bottles filled with polymer dyes that glow and by um, putting a drop of the same whiskey in all of these different things, you end up with uh, a, a series of tubes of phosphorescence going on that you can take a photograph of and it's a bit like looking at a, a picture of DNA and it's a unique identifiable code so that you can check that you're not getting some fake whiskey that mm. someone's poured together using, you know, antifreeze and whatever mm. nefarious sort of things that you might want to imitate 100-year-old Pete with. Yeah. But it's <laughs> it's quite incredible. So, you know, they've created a fingerprint for whiskey uh, just with a series of bottles. I thought that was very clever. Mm. Mm. Very much. Very nice. Let's jump to some events and opportunities. Oh, Colin. Oh, no, wait. Do we have more, more weird news? Well, just quickly, have you ever been caught in the rain and wished, oh, if only there was some sort of app where I could ride share an umbrella? Well, <laughs> well, the Chinese firm Sharing E-Umbrellas came up with that idea and they rolled out in a few cities in China with 300,000 shareable umbrellas and they've all been stolen, uh, pretty much <laughs> all of them. But apparently the company has decided they're going to push on and expand uh, throughout the country. But I, I can't quite understand what you're supposed to do, you know, with the umbrella when you get to where you're going and how that's supposed to work. It seems like a... Uh, idea with a few bugs to be ironed oh, out. No. Coming to Australia soon, perhaps let's see. All right, <laughs> we'll look out for that. It's a lot better than the uh, the street touts who try and charge you, you know, exorbitant amounts for an umbrella because mm. it's raining. Uh, in events and opportunities, Creative Victoria have launched the Creators Fund. The program will provide grants of between twenty and fifty thousand dollars to support individuals or creative collectives working in the arts, design, contemporary music, and game development, screen, or fashion sectors to work intensively for a period of between three to six months. It's a great opportunity. Um, Expressions of interest will open on the 17th of August and close on the 7th of September. Check it out at creative.vic.gov.au if you're thinking of uh, building some ideas. Uh, and maybe you want to... Do you want to put an event out there, Colin? Yeah, so uh, I'm a big fan of, of hackathons as well and the, the annual GovHack is coming up on July 28th. So it's an open data competition where teams get 46 hours to create a, pro a, a project and build a proof of concept um, based around open government data. 
um, something we need to see more of. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.